It's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, May 10th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. Kelly Reese returns Friday. The Health Resources and Services Administration recently found that over 11 million people live in an area of California experiencing a shortage of primary care providers. The California report explores what that means for medically vulnerable people, especially those suffering from long COVID. Then, after a look at local news and weather, KVMR's Nell Ungoran explores the many complexities of the United States debt ceiling. This is the California report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Governor Gavin Newsom is scheduled to release his revised budget on Friday. He's warned about a major deficit, but that isn't stopping lawmakers from putting pressure on him to increase child care funding to the tune of a billion dollars. KQED's Daisy Wynn has more. Democrats in the legislature want to raise pay rates for subsidized child care providers by 25 percent. San Francisco Assemblymember Phil Ting chairs the Budget Committee. He says while that sounds like a lot, those providers haven't received a rate increase in seven years. This is not even a real raise. This is just keeping up with cost of living. And unfortunately, uh, all these providers have had to keep up with inflation. They've had to increase people's salaries. They've had their cost of goods, their cost of rent go up as well. He says the investment is necessary because the state economy depends on child care. For the California Report, I'm Daisy Nguyen. After the COVID-19 public health emergency ends tomorrow, some people who were receiving medication through telehealth will need to visit a doctor in person. KPBS reporter Katie Heisen spoke with a doctor about what's at stake. Doctors can prescribe a 30-day supply of controlled substances to people who've only been seen through telehealth but they will have to visit a provider in person within that month to continue receiving their medication. In-person visits are harder for those facing higher barriers to access, like lack of housing, transportation, or time. And for some, access is life or death. Dr. Christian Ramers of Family Health Centers San Diego says under the emergency order, telehealth greatly increased access to addiction treatment medications. Buprenorphine used to be more narrowly restricted. Um, and this is probably the most valuable and important uh, weapon for us against the opioid and overdose crisis. The Health Resources and Services Administration found that more than 11 million people live in an area of California with a shortage of primary care providers. For the California Report, I'm Katie Heisen. As we're now in the fourth year of the pandemic, there is a growing sense of optimism that the worst is likely behind us. Vaccines and boosters have helped reduce the number of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. But for millions of Americans who are suffering from long COVID symptoms, there's no end in sight for their day-to-day -day struggles. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi takes us behind those struggles and what is and isn't being done to help. Back in 2021, we brought you the story of Charlie McCone, a healthy Bay Area man in his 30s who contracted long COVID. Long COVID patients have suffered from a variety of health issues, everything from brain fog and fatigue to long-term respiratory and heart problems. In some cases, they can come and go, but for others, like Charlie, 
They've lasted more than three years with no let-up. I can shower myself and I can, you know, do that stuff, but that's kind of about it. I can't stand up for longer than five minutes without all of my symptoms going haywire. McCone says he's fortunate for the support system that surrounded him during this ordeal. But frustration is setting in. My biggest frustration right now isn't in my symptoms. It's in the lack of action around doing things we know could help patients right now. That includes starting trials for possible treatments. But the National Institutes of Health is taking a more cautious approach. Congress awarded the agency more than a billion dollars two years ago to research the root cause of long COVID, which could be a long process. Dr. Walter Korschetz is heading up the NIH's Recover Long COVID initiative. We are being a little more deliberate, particularly to try and get something that's going to have a high effect size in, in patients and, and really make a big difference. Dr. Korschetz says he understands the frustration that long COVID patients have. Treatments that are geared at the symptom reduction, those things can happen pretty quickly. And we're hoping to get those off the ground. The first official clinical trial for Paxlovid as a possible treatment is underway at Stanford University. But it's not funded by the NIH, and results aren't expected until late this year. Stephen Deeks, a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, has been working with long COVID patients and says the federal government is just not moving fast enough. Based on the fact that there's any anecdotes of people getting better with antiviral therapy, yes, it's an absolute urgency right now to study in a controlled manner all of the antiviral therapies that we have available. Deke says potential trials have moved slower than normal, in large part because pharmaceutical companies have yet to buy in, like they did with the COVID vaccines. Oakland resident Lisa McCorkle is a long COVID patient. She now heads the Patient-Led Research Collaborative, a group which advocates for patient-involved research on long COVID. Having a lot of government leaders dismiss long COVID over the last couple of years. It's really led to this lack of prioritization of long COVID research and specifically the clinical trials. For Charlie McCone, he says the threat of long COVID is still out there. And with the federal public health emergency ending, it's unclear if anything is being done to help people suffering from this condition. This is the fastest growing health crisis in America. This which is resulting in the biggest mass disabling event in history, which it sounds like hyperbole, but it is not. It's just what the reality is. McCone says he remains optimistic because it doesn't do any good to feel sorry for himself. But he says more people have to start demanding answers because if they do it now, it greatly reduces the chances someone they love will fall victim to this debilitating condition. For The California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and Adult and Children's Health Systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. StanfordMedicine.org. Paint Care, now with more than 850 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes 11th Hour Racing, working to connect sustainability with sport to help restore ocean health on the web at 11thHourRacing.org. 
And that's the California Report for Wednesday, May 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, today was the first day of the Nevada County Planning Commission's public hearing and consideration of the Idaho-Maryland mines reopening. There was a large public turnout, both mine supporters and opposers were present at the event, and over 300 people applied for public comment. The meeting began with presentations from county staff and the project applicant, Rise Gold Corporation, which ended at noon, and a brief round of public comment followed before a break for lunch at 1 p.m. Rise Gold Corporation CEO Ben Mossman addressed the Planning Commission directly. Here's a bit of what he had to say. After four years, millions of dollars, and 30,000 pages of technical reports, we have one final hurdle put in front of us. Does the Idaho Maryland mine foster our rural quality of life in Nevada County? First, I think it's important to acknowledge that the Idaho Maryland mine has been part of Nevada County since its, since its formation. The mine was not closed from depletion but rather the policies of the U.S. government, which fixed the price of gold at $35 per ounce. When the mine closed in 1956, it owned almost all the surface land above it. Surface land was severed and sold, but only with a strict agreement that the mine would retain all necessary and convenient rights to extract its minerals in the future. This agreement is written to every deed of every property of every neighborhood surrounding the site, including East Bennett Road, Brunswick Manor at Beaver Drive, New Brunswick Court, Cedar Ridge, Timber Lane, Star Drive, Brunswick Pines, Whispering Pines, and Loma Rica. Brunswick Road has been used to access the Brunswick site for over 130 years. This includes the mine, the sawmill, and recently PG&E and the Greenways program. Drivers might see our head frame as they pass by. Drivers may see a truck for the mine on Brunswick Road. However, these trucks would make up less than 1% of the traffic on the road. 50 truckloads over 16 hours is only one truck every 20 minutes. If this bothers someone, I suggest to think about what this head frame or truck represents. 300 members of your community earning on average $145,000 per year. $50 million per year in new spending at local business, creating hundreds of additional jobs. Tens of millions of dollars in construction work for local contractors. $6 million per year in new property taxes funding schools, towns, and public safety. Public comment for the Idaho-Maryland Mine Project hearing will continue into tomorrow, May 11th. A media release announced today that PG&E will be conducting an exercise on Thursday that involves low-flying helicopters in Weimar and north of Nevada City. PG&E crews are training for potential future public safety power shutoffs, or PSPS, events, which can occur in late summer or other times of the year when necessary. As part of the exercise, PG&E will patrol two electric circuits by air between Applegate and Weimar in Placer County, as well as in French Corral, North San Juan, and North Columbia areas. The helicopters will fly fairly low, about 200 feet above the terrain, between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m., and no power outages are required for the operation of this drill. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 43. Thursday, sunny with a high near 69. Thursday night, clear with a low around 49. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 28. Thursday, sunny with a high near 63. Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 37. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, 
Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 49. Thursday, sunny with a high near 79. Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 53. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. The Congressional Budget Office and the U.S. Department of the Treasury have both released information suggesting that the United States is rapidly approaching the X date, the date at which the government can no longer pay its bills. This would be considered a breach of the United States debt ceiling. In order to avoid this, the ceiling needs to be raised. But what exactly is a debt ceiling, and what are the potential economic consequences of failing to raise it? Up next, KVMR's Nell and Goran seeks to answer these questions. What in the world is a debt ceiling and why does it need to be raised? What happens if it's not raised? Let's start with what raising the debt ceiling is not. It's not about creating new government programs. It's about paying for everything that Congress has already voted on and approved. While presidential administrations propose an annual federal budget, the U.S. Constitution grants Congress what it calls the power of the purse or control of the federal government's money. Congress determines what federal taxes individuals and businesses pay and what the federal government spends that money on. Both political parties, Democrats and Republicans, are involved in these decisions because control of Congress shifts back and forth and because votes are usually needed from members of both parties to pass the federal budget each year. Congress's funding decisions are also long-lasting. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, over 90% of the current national debt is due to policy choices made before President Biden took office. It's also important to note that funding decisions are not just about spending. Cutting taxes is one of the most serious funding decisions Congress makes. Cutting taxes reduces the amount of money the government has to pay its bills, including bills that it's been paying for decades and is committed to continuing to pay. Less money coming in from taxes means our government has to borrow more money to make up for that loss of income. The most recent example is a tax cut approved by the Congressional Republicans in 2017 under President Trump, which added more than $2 trillion to the federal debt. So, back to the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is the amount that the U.S. Treasury Department can borrow to help pay the bills that are due based on all those prior decisions by Congress. If current spending exceeds the debt limit, Congress needs to raise that limit to authorize more borrowing or the federal government can only draw from the cash it has on hand. This would be the same as you needing to live entirely on any cash you have at the moment without using a mortgage, car loan, or credit cards. Most of us rely on one or more of those forms of borrowing in our everyday life. But you're probably asking, why does our federal government have to borrow money to pay its bills? Can't it just spend less? And who loans our government this money? Let's look at these questions one by one. The first point is that yes, Our federal government has debt. Actually, all nations, large and small, rich and poor, borrow and owe money to lenders. This is called sovereign debt. Sovereign debt is used to raise cash for a country's spending needs when its sources of revenue, such as income taxes, either aren't adequate or aren't paid at a time when money needs to be spent. One reason this happens to the U.S. government is because businesses and also many individuals pay their taxes quarterly or even annually but the government has to pay out money more frequently than that. Another reason our government takes on debt is to finance national projects, such as new infrastructure like highways or bridges. But most of what the U.S. government pays for is not projects, but regular and mandatory commitments. 
For example, salaries for members of our military. The government can't make our service members wait to be paid until more taxes roll in. The same is true for all federal employees, such as air traffic controllers who keep flying safe, social security staff who make sure claims are processed so seniors get the money they need, and so on. The federal government is also on call to provide emergency assistance at any time, anywhere in the country. For example, regional disasters like the winter storms California just went through trigger federal disaster aid. Sometimes this federal assistance is mind-bogglingly large. In 2008, when the housing and stock markets crashed and a worldwide recession began, our federal government intervened to stabilize financial institutions and provide economic stimulus money to create jobs for people who'd lost theirs at a cost of over $1.5 trillion. During the COVID pandemic, the government spent more than $3 trillion for a wide variety of emergency measures, including vaccine development, manufacturing, and distribution, as well as critical economic relief for both individual citizens and small businesses. When crises like these occur, the government can't wait until more tax money comes in before acting to help its citizens. And tax revenue might not be adequate to such huge national needs anyway. So it relies on borrowing, just like any of us might borrow money in an emergency. Of course, some of what is spent could be reduced or even cut, but a full two-thirds of each year's federal budget consists of mandatory spending. The two biggest items in this mandatory category are Social Security and Medicare. These are often called entitlement programs, because all of us who paid into them are entitled to draw benefits at a designated age. These benefits must be paid every month and can't simply be cut or eliminated. Other items in the federal budget are called discretionary spending because they can be adjusted every year. But that doesn't mean these are luxuries. The largest item by far in the discretionary federal budget is our military. Just this past year, the cost for the U.S. military was $773 billion. That's more than three quarters of a trillion dollars for a single year. Our military budget alone accounts for two-thirds of all discretionary spending by the federal government. So that's a quick look at why our government needs so much money. Let's talk about its debt. Who lends our government money? Well, it might be you or me, or your parents or grandparents. In fact, 80% of our national debt is owned by the American public in one form or another. If you want to lend the United States money, you can buy a U.S. savings bond or a treasury bill, also called a T-bill. You can buy them in amounts ranging from quite small to quite large, and they pay very good interest. And unlike other investments such as real estate or stocks, U.S. government bonds and T-bills are considered completely safe. You are guaranteed not only to get your interest paid on time, every time, but to get your initial investment paid back in full with absolutely no chance of it losing any value. That's a deal that you don't get when you buy a house or stocks or any other investment. And that's why U.S. government T-bills are considered one of the best investments in the world and why not only individual investors but other countries buy them. The U.S. T-bill is the gold standard of debt because it has, quote, the full faith of the U.S. government behind it. End quote. And that's because the U.S. government has never defaulted on its debt. But that's precisely what we would be doing if Congress refuses to raise the debt ceiling. The government would not have enough cash on hand to pay all its existing obligations and would have to default on some of them, which is something that has never happened before. Raising the debt ceiling is a formal process by which Congress, which has that power of the purse, agrees that the U.S. Treasury Department can take the steps needed to fund the existing financial obligations that Congress itself 
has already authorized. This includes paying Social Security, Medicare, and our military, as well as the interest owed to holders of those U.S. savings bonds and T-bills. Those holders include U.S. citizens, often retirees, who need that guaranteed interest income to live on. Because all federal government spending is approved by Congress already, some argue that this process of raising the debt ceiling is actually unnecessary. Historically, it's been a routine formality that occurs about twice a year, with neither Republicans nor Democrats objecting to it. The only reason we're talking about it now is that the current congressional majority party is threatening not to raise it. And again, not raising the debt ceiling means we, the United States, won't pay all the money that we've already promised to pay. Imagine if you refused to pay your mortgage or your car payment. Your home would be foreclosed on, your car would be repossessed, and your credit would be ruined. It's no different when a country won't pay what it's promised to pay. In fact, it's worse. Because the United States is the most powerful country in the world, and its commitment to pay its debt has always been ironclad, Congress declaring that the U.S. will default would not only seriously affect the U.S. economy, but likely the world economy as well. And that's why this decision matters to you and me. Congress refusing to raise the debt ceiling would potentially trigger a cascade of effects, much like the crash of the housing and stock markets in 2008, when people lost their homes and their jobs and a worldwide recession began. Even worse, no country or individual investor would ever trust the U.S. government not to default again in the future, just as lenders wouldn't trust you if you stopped paying your mortgage or car loan. This would make borrowing more difficult and expensive for the U.S., just as it does for people with bad credit. And the bottom line is that refusing to raise the debt ceiling would not save the U.S. government or us taxpayers any money. Not a cent. In fact, it would end up costing a tremendous amount because it would create a crisis that would require yet more government spending to rescue American citizens from the economic consequences of the default. And we know from the recent past just how very expensive crises are. So, what are the chances that the United States will have such an unprecedented financial default? At this point, it's hard to say. But one thing's for certain, we will all know if it happens. That's our newscast for this Wednesday, May 10th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and the Strawberry Music Festival, May 24th through 29th at the Nevada County Fairgrounds, celebrating over 40 years as a family-friendly music and camping experience, featuring Yonder Mountain String Band, North Mississippi All-Stars, Della May, and more. Strawberrymusic.com and Sierra Ambulatory Surgery Center, LLC providing outpatient ophthalmic surgical procedures, interventional pain management, also surgeries of the foot and ankle since 2006. On Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley, Sierra Ambulatory Surgery Center at sasconline.com. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great night.